Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County. I'm your host, Francis Etherington. Today I will be talking with Stacy McLaughlin, a landowner impacted by the Pacific Connector Pipeline coming through Douglas County. Welcome, Stacy. Hi, Francis. Thank you for having me. What is the Pacific Connector Pipeline? Well, the Pacific Connector Fracked Gas Pipeline is a nightmare for those of us who live in Douglas County that are impacted by it. Um, not just those of us who are directly impacted as landowners, but also those of us who enjoy the natural resources and the outdoor um, environment of our public lands, which it is also going to be crossing. Uh, it is a 230-some-odd mile, I think 232-mile uh, gas pipeline that will be stretching from Malin, Oregon, all the way through Douglas County, Coos County, Klamath County, and Jackson County to the port of Coos Bay, where it will be offloaded to a facility known as Jordan Cove. And Jordan Cove is an LNG uh, export terminal as well as a conversion facility to take the gas into its liquid form, which we know as LNG. So, uh, Malin, that's near Klamath Falls. Yes. And then, and so it comes, uh, and your property is south of Douglas County, just a little bit south of Winston. So it crosses Interstate 5, just north of Myrtle Creek there, and then goes on through the Coast Range and ends up in Coos Bay where the Jordan Cove project has proposed a terminal to liquefy this natural gas that compresses it, it super cools it and it compresses it so you can fit more on ships and they're going to ship it to Asia. Yeah, and I like um you know, I like that you're use I like that you've used the term natural gas because as it goes, the process whereby they um, uh, obtain this gas is everything but natural. It is not a process that is um, uh, helpful to our environment at all. In fact, it's one of the most um, toxic processes that um, is in existence right now for gas extraction. You're talking about fracking. I'm talking about fracking. I'm talking about uh, the injection well, pro the injection wells, the process that they use to push the gas up and out of the earth in order to to obtain it, and then also the end result, which is where they take the uh, toxic chemicals that they use and then they just inject them right back down into um, the the groundwater supplies that are affecting many, many, many people across this nation. And when we talk about clean water, it is not just a uh, erroneous phrase. It's something that's a serious consequence of this, of fracking. Right, and so that's why it's not really natural gas, it's really fracked gas, which is uh, a big problem. One of the big problems I understand with fracked gas and then moving it so far in pipelines and liquefying it and shipping <clears throat> it and all this is that there's little leaks along the way. And this is methane that is released into the atmosphere. Well, you know, you say the word little. I think it's probably um, a misnomer that there's anything little about it. I think that the leakage that we have going on across this nation, not only at the injection well sites and at the fracking sites, the wellheads, um, and along the pipeline is that there is so much more methane leaking than there was ever any understanding would be the case. And they can't contain it. They don't know how to contain it. They don't have that technology in place. And I think that's one of the, um, the uh, messages that those of us who care about this have not been able to really fully explore with the public. And I think even one of the folks that most people will recognize the name, Bill McKibben, has said is it's not a message we've been very successful at um, sharing. Because methane leaked unburned into the atmosphere is a far more potent greenhouse gas than coal. Absolutely. Instance. It's 86 times more potent than coal. So 
Well, I mean, and it's it's toxic. It's not healthy. It's where was it down in um, California last year? They had huge methane leaks. They had to evacuate an entire community in order to keep them safe from the toxicity of this of the methane leakage within the atmosphere surrounding their homes and the schools in that community. Um, I'm sorry, the name of it escapes me. So building this big infrastructure here in Oregon, 230-mile-long pipeline, a big liquefaction terminal, um, is really bad for global warming and our climate. And I also hear that it will be one of the biggest emitters just in Oregon, not counting the fracking, but just moving it through Oregon will be one of our biggest uh, carbon emissions in the state of Oregon. Yes, and that's just one aspect. For me, the the easiest way to characterize this project, the Pacific Connector Frack Gas Pipeline and the Jordan Cove LNG facility, is to say that this project, these projects, will leave the state of Oregon an environmental crime scene that we will likely not come back from. Not only will it devastate many of the natural and pristine areas of our wilderness, of our private properties, our public lands. This project has the potential to tie our country's economy to a fossil fuel industry that is long into the future that is just sort of an insane idiocy when you think about the fact that so many countries across this globe, as well as communities across this nation, are moving toward a sustainable energy future. Why would we want to do that to ourselves? Uh, for For the momentary satisfaction of some temporary jobs, which, by the way, is a strategy that's been quite successful across this country in getting projects developed that really have no long-term benefit to a community. Oh, well, it will produce jobs. These projects will not produce the numbers of jobs that are being broadcast and promoted by these companies. In fact, it's very unclear what number is the real number. It depends on which which website you're looking at, on which day, as to what number they're quoting. Are they quoting uh, the temporary jobs associated with the pipeline? Are they quoting the uh, four or five or the handful of jobs associated with the facility? Or are they quoting the jobs that will be tied to the uh, international tankers that will be coming into our waters that have no consequence economically or benefit for our communities at all? It's, it's ironic that we would be using that metaphor, if you will, in order to try to justify um, these projects. Especially since the profits, the ultimate profits, will all be returned to the owner of this project, a Canadian company, uh, Pimbina. There's also no benefit to the United States because it's a Canadian company, mostly Canadian gas, that will be shipped through Oregon to Asia using Oregonians' property. And you're one landowner that's impacted by this pipeline, your property, and I believe there is about 280 other private landowners besides yourself that are facing the prospect of their property being condemned by this Canadian company so they can build up their profits. That's an, that's another one, Francis, that I think is a little confusing. It depends on what you're talking about with respect to who's impacted. I know that I am a directly impacted landowner, that the pipeline will be constructed across my land, over a mile across the land that my husband has so... Uh, with with a, a stewardship that's unbelievable as far as tried to restore the habitat that had been um, neglected for so many years. And we're now seeing the fruits of those labors. We have a, a elk herd that's almost a resident there. We have seen wildlife that we did not see for years when we first arrived, um, when we first bought the property. Uh, the other thing that that's a little confusing to me is When you say impacted landowner, I'm going to be affected by eminent domain, meaning that this Canadian company can utilize the laws of the United States to have my property, as you suggested, condemned, and then 
they set the price and decide what it's worth to them. I have no price. There is no price that I can have that would justify what the consequences of this project would be for our property. And um, maybe there's 200 and some directly impacted landowners that would be that would actually have pipeline on their property. But the numbers, I believe, are maybe three times that, upwards of 600 that will be impacted with temporary roads, temporary closures, temporary crossings, construction sites adjacent to the pipeline. It's a bigger project than just the way that they're presenting it to the communities. They're, they are so sinister in the way that they want to try to convince our communities that this is a good deal. Let's say that I give you a opportunity to apply for a $5,000 grant so that you can support your nonprofit for another half a year. Or I give you the opportunity to uh, participate in a special program that I might have that gives you a dollar benefit. What that is, is it's, it's blood money, if you will. And that is that other people are bearing the cost of the dollars that they're coming in to try to convince people that this is a good thing. I'm the one that will be, will be suffering. It won't be the Boys and Girls Club in Roseburg. It won't be the Roseburg Chamber of Commerce, which is a staunch supporter of this program, and it comes nowhere near Roseburg. There is no benefit or consequence to the city of Roseburg for this other than Jordan Cove and Pacific Connector give them big dollars to be members. I recently, in fact, this is not something I'm, I'm not able to prove. In fact, pretty much everything I'm going to tell you I can prove. Um, was recently awarded a $15,000 contribution for their uh, lobbying efforts. Who was? Uh, the Roseburg Area Chamber of Commerce received a $15,000 contribution from Jordan Cove in order to help support their political activities. Now, those political activities are not representing the best interests of the communities that are directly affected. How well is Myrtle Creek being supported by the Roseburg Area Chamber of Commerce? How well is Winston being supported by the Roseburg Area Chamber of Commerce? They're not. So um, when did you first hear about this pipeline wanting to come through your property? How long has it been hanging over your head? The project in and of itself has been hanging over this county's head for upwards of, I'm going to say, a dozen years now. Directly for us, when they changed the route of the pipeline, we are now probably seven years into this. And seven years in that, in, during the course of the lifetime of this project, their initial proposal was, we want to make the United States energy independent. Who's against that? Who's against that? Not very many Americans would say, we don't want that. So Jordan Cove's original proposal was they were going to import gas in order to enhance the environmental and economic future of the country. That didn't last very long. That was in 2009. Actually, I believe they first proposed that in 2005. Okay, and that's then right. the federal government, FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, approved it. In 2009. Right. In 2009, I believe it was in December, uh, approval of the project to import natural gas was uh, given and granted by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is an absolute necessity. And according to the local permitting process was a requirement. At about the same time that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission approved the project for import, so did Douglas County. There's a seven-mile stretch of this pipeline that goes through Douglas County's Coastal Zone Management Area. Now, the Coastal Zone Management Area, otherwise known as the CZMA, is the area in Douglas County that's on the west side of the Coast Range. So the seven miles we're talking about is in the Camas Valley area in Douglas County before it moves into Coos County. Yes. And as a result of that portion of the pipeline being in the Coastal Zone Management Area, it requires a conditional use permit because those regulations, 
that there are different zoning requirements within the CZMA. There's two things about that that are unique. One is that there's only a seven-mile stretch, so that conditional use permit and the permitting in Douglas County applies only to that seven-mile stretch. As opposed to the Coos County stretch, which applies to the entire pipeline in Coos County. Okay. Yeah. Now then, the other component is that coastal zone management areas, CZMAs, were the one area within the Bush-Cheney Energy Act that had sort of a special dispensation. You can't avoid or you cannot impact coastal areas in states. So states and local governments usurp federal regulatory processes in the coastal areas, in those CZMAs, as you suggest. So Douglas County literally has the ability to stop this project as a result of that seven-mile stretch of pipeline. Now, our planning commissioners back in 2009 were suspect of this project because they placed a condition on that permit that said you can only import gas through that seven-mile stretch. So they were not necessarily convinced that there wasn't something up. Well, as it turns out, they were, they were not only they were not only intuitive about that, they um, uh, took the precautions that then later required because at the in 2011, Jordan Cove and the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline decided that we aren't going to make enough money to import gas. So, hmm, I know, let's export gas. So, at the same time. That and this is when fracking was r ramping up, yes. and suddenly they had an excess of natural gas, and so you could make you could make a dollar as an example, or you could make a thousand dollars as a company. Well, they chose the thousand dollars, and so at that time in two thousand and eleven, they decided that they wanted to export natural gas. Um, or fracked gas instead of imported. And well, this is very exciting. And we're going to talk about this transformation between importing and exporting in 2011 and right after the break. This is Francis Etherington, and this is Conservation Today, and we're talking with Stacy McLaughlin. We're back talking with Stacy McLaughlin. This is Conservation Today, and Stacy was just talking about uh, how the history of the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline and the Jordan Cove Project and how back in 2009 it was approved as an import terminal. And then the company decided they really wanted to export because that was a time when fracking was really being developed well and suddenly they got a lot of gas. So the Canadian company now wants to export mostly Canadian gas through Oregon, and um, so when was it, about 2012, when they came back with a proposal to export? Well, actually what happened was in 2011, at the federal level, they said, we want to um, export. And so FERC vacated their initial approval and then said, you need to reapply. So now all those approvals that were in place were, were gone. We're vacated. So we have a brand new project. We have now. a brand new project. However, Douglas County, with respect to their permit that required FERC approval, decided to ignore that took place and just kept their pipeline permit, their conditional use permit in place. Now, under the Douglas County land use law, you have to begin development on your project within two years of approval. So that project was approved in 2009. In 2011, they had to start going to the county and asking for extensions because Douglas County had ignored that there was a brand new project. So the, the, the unfortunate situation here is that the county has not applied their land use laws in accordance with the law. And, as, and, and the way that we can document that is this. In 2011... Mm -hmm. Pacific Connector said, we're going to export. Douglas County had a condition that said, you can't export, you have to import. Douglas County also has a requirement that you have to begin construction within two years. Two years had not occurred. Two years had passed. They asked for an extension 
According to the Doug- Douglas County Land Use Development Code, if you are responsible for any of the delays in construction or any of the delays associated with your project, the county cannot, under the law, grant an extension. The county has repeatedly granted an extension on this permit and has chosen to illegally ignore that they are behaving against their own laws. Now, and so Douglas County should not have granted an extension. Instead, a whole new permit should have been applied for. Exactly. Instead, the county should have required a whole new application. But they've not done that. And and what's so unique to me in this, um, and I'm, I am not going to use this term lightly, but I use this term with every ounce of confidence that Douglas County is corrupt when it comes to their planning laws associated with this project. And And the way that I know that is that their law specifically says you can't cause your own delays. Jordan Cove chose to move from import to export. The county cannot grant an extension if there has been a change in condition that is so serious. Now, a change in condition is a couple of things. Number one, we're going from import to export. That's huge. At the same time that Pacific Connector is applying to eliminate the condition for import only, the county is granting extensions. So in their left hand, they have an application that says, we want to make this from an import to an export permit. And in their right hand, the planning director is holding the law that says, I can't grant an extension if there's been a change in condition. That's a change in condition. That's a huge change in condition, and he knows it. So why do we continue to go through this year after year after year? That's the first instance. I mean, one thing you can tell is a change in condition because it has a whole new docket in front of FERC, a whole new docket number. It's an entirely new project. And they've changed the route. They've changed the route from import and export. All right, so now let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to 2016. In 2016, FERC denied the Pacific Connector gas pipeline. In March of 2016, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission issued a denial for the Pacific Connector gas pipeline. And as a result, because of its connectivity to Jordan Cove, Jordan Cove was also um, just by default denied. So why did they deny it? They denied it because they had not been able to prove that there was a need for this pipeline. And the biggest consequence was they didn't have any of the landowner support that they needed. It was minimal. About the only landowner support they had were from those landowners that signed on when it was an import-only project. Now, also, they said, oh, we've sold this gas when they hadn't sold the gas, and FERC knew that they hadn't hadn't sold it. It's when there was a glut of natural gas on the market and they couldn't find any contracts to buy the gas and they would have had to do eminent domain on almost all the landowners, so FERC said no. No, exactly. So because, because there's an opportunity for them to um, uh, ask FERC to reconsider, they took it. And so they said, hey, FERC, would you reconsider your decision? And FERC said, no, we're not going to reconsider our decision, but we will consider whether or not we want to consider it. Now, sounds a little bureaucratic, and I suppose it is. And so that was in May of 2016. March. No, in March, they denied it. In May of 2016, Pacific Connector went back and said, would you reconsider your your consideration? Right, right. FERC said, we'll think about it. So FERC thought about it from May of 2016 until December of 2016. At the same time that Douglas County was being submitted with a application for yet another extension, I believe the ninth extension. And the day before Douglas County received a request to get to grant the extension for Pacific Connector, FERC issued their final denial. 
and said, we are not going to reconsider. This project is denied. So in December, December 9th to be exact of 2016, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission once and for all denied Pacific Connector gas pipeline and as a result, the Jordan Cove project. Douglas County knew full well that the project was denied and it did not have FERC approval and yet granted another extension of a pipeline that literally could not be built because it did not have federal approval. You tell me that's Against their own regulations. Against their own regulations. They broke their own law repeatedly for nine years. And then the, their law, the, one, the, the clause that's so unique in there is that there can't be a change in condition. The condition of the conditional use permit said you have to have federal approval. Federal approval was denied. And yet they decided that that was, didn't matter. So I don't know if they're actually getting payments I don't know if they're getting new houses built. I don't know if it's just because they like pipelines. But they're breaking the law over and over and over again in order to grant this permit its approvals. So what did you do about that? Well, there's a group of landowners, a handful of them. And let me just say here, real quickly, if, if people are confused, one month after FERC did that denial... Almost uh, a full month after Douglas County signed off on it again, and three days after Trump was inaugurated president, they refiled. And starting from the beginning, the third time around, they refiled in 2017. So we're still fighting this project, even though it was denied once, and no conditions have changed since it was denied once. So it should be denied again. Correct. Um, <clears throat> there's actually videotape of, of, or audio or videotape, I believe, of the then owner, Verison Corporation, now resigned, retired, or fired, uh, energy, or Gary Cohen, who was in the Trump administration that was facilitating approval of this project. So, you know, it's, it's hard enough to keep track of the players, let alone try to keep track of the route changes, let alone try to keep track of who owns the company. And then the, uh, the, the thing that stayed the same, Francis, is the landowners, because we can't, we can't change. We can't change. We can't sell our properties because nobody wants to buy a property that's under the threat of a 36-inch high-pressure gas pipeline coming across the land. That needs a 100-foot-wide right-of-way to build it. And, and a permanent easement. And that is, it's not in the world of pipelines if it will explode, it's when it will explode. And we can't develop our properties because there are certain things that can and cannot happen in a pipeline route and in that easement, so that can't happen. So we've, we are essentially held hostage as people who live in the United States to a Canadian corporation that wants to um, impact the, the, the global climate by processing and expanding the fossil fuel market through this LNG project. And it certainly doesn't help Douglas County residents when our county commissioners continue to appear to break the law and just reapprove it every two years. Not only do they break the law by reapproving this every every year, actually, they they only get approval for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and the unique thing here is that there was also, as they were processing the application to remove the condition for import only and allow the pipeline to be used for export. And the county processed, it's called a major amendment. So you have a major amendment. Now, they've termed it that. So a major amendment, to me, suggests a change in condition that was so significant the county required an entirely new application. And as a result of that, there were a lot of different kinds of hearings that went on. And um, it's unique. You know, it's not unique. It's actually pretty regular. It's actually pretty routine for Douglas County to violate the law. It's actually pretty much the the standard operating procedures when it comes to the planning. And and the, the way that I can point that out is I was at the hearing one night when they were doing the final consideration of whether or not to grant the major amendment. And they took a vote of all the planning commissioners. And on the planning commission was a new commissioner, Mark Brozai. Now, Mark Brozai had not permitted 
participated in any of the public hearings. He had not read the record. He had no familiarity with the project at all. Now, during the vote, Mark Brozai voted on the project. And in a vote that put it over the line and approved the change, I was in the audience and I questioned his participation. And as a result of that, Mark Brozai had to withdraw from the vote. So now you don't have a majority. Uh, and so now you have a tie. When you have a tie on a decision on a legislative body such as that, then there is no change. So the original decision stands. So um, as I was leaving... Actually, the, the original decision was for imp import, import only. only. So they obviously could not use that decision. Clearly, so they couldn't. So as I was leaving the courthouse... And I've volunteered on numerous occasions to uh, make this statement under oath. The Jordan Cove Pacific Connector legal team was in front of me going down the steps, along with members of the Pacific Connector contingency. And one of them said, we need to find a way to get Brozai's vote back into the mix. At that planning commission meeting, they had scheduled a meeting the next week to develop the the. Um, uh, conditions as to why they could not reach a decision, when in fact they had reached a decision. It was a tie decision. So those meetings were canceled, and new meetings were held, and the new meetings were to reopen the record to allow Commissioner Brozai to participate in the vote. It was a scripted uh, event that took place at another meeting that occurred between then Commissioner Romy Ware and the planning director and the chair of the meeting, who at that time uh, was Javier I'm sorry, it's hard for me to pronounce his last name, but... Yeah, Javier G. Javier Gori Gonzalo or something. Um, so it was clear to me, as a member of the public, and, you know, just as an offshoot, uh, I have a land use planning background as the former executive director for the Umpqua Regional Council of Governments. I have 30 years background in local government, so I understand the process and the procedures. And I can assure you that what I witnessed was nothing I have ever seen before. And it is clear and... They did a re-vote and then they had a majority that time mm -hmm. because they were all voted. No and then it was approved. And as a result of that approval, a handful of landowners including people who have property in the coastal zone management area, approved approve, or, or appealed it to the Board of Commissioners. The commissioners at the time were Doug Robertson, Susan Morgan, and Joe Lawrence. And uh, as is the process, it had to go before the Board of Commissioners, and they had to make a determination as to whether or not that they would hear this. And in the course of that, I did not happen to be in attendance at that meeting, but I did listen to it. Um, at that meeting, uh, Attorney uh, County Counsel Paul Myers advised the Board of Commissioners that even though the item was on the agenda, it had been advertised, there were um, public documents associated with it that were available to the public, that if they were to allow people to speak and offer their opinions on this, it would be ex parte contact. Now, most people, What's that mean? most people recognize that ex parte contact means that you have contact with an official who is a decision maker on an item or a vote outside of a public process. And it can be a conflict of interest or it can be, um, it, well, it's, it's a problem. And so you have to acknowledge it. But in the meeting where it's advertised with the agenda, where it's on the dais, it's not ex parte contact. So the people that were there in opposition to the project were not allowed to talk. Again, another corrupt process that was unbelievable to me. Now, the so, really... The, and so you, you decided to take matters into your own hands at some point here, and we're going to talk about that when we come back from a break. And... This is Conservation Today, and I am your host, Francis Etherington, and we will come back and talk with Stacey McLaughlin about this exciting event here in Douglas County. This is Conservation Today, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. We are back from break talking with Stacey McLaughlin about the coastal zone management area in Douglas County and the Douglas County Commissioner's Authority on the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline through that area. Stacy was explaining that they were given permission in 2009 
and it had to be renewed every two years, and these renewals are very questionable because they renewed a different project when it went from import to export. Well, one correction, and that is that the, um, the, the permits, the conditional use permits in Douglas County require construction to begin in two years. And if it does not, then they have the opportunity to ask for annual extensions. So the county can only grant a one-year extension, and they've done that nine times. So we have a project that has not been reviewed uh, that keeps getting approved for over 12 years that literally has the potential to kill people that live in this community. And they've not reviewed it for 12 years. And it's the third project of that type. It was import, it was export, it was denied, and then it was export again in spite of that. They've been renewing the very same old permit, old, old information. So it, it, I did bring up earlier that the, the Planning Commission had, had approved the major amendment. At the same time the major amendment was being processed, Douglas County was granting an extension in violation of its land use development ordinance that said no extensions can be granted if there has been a change in condition. So, you can't have it both ways. You can't be changing the permit because you want to make, because of a change in condition, and then granting an extension and pretending there's no change in condition when you're doing both at the same time. So it's you, it's you, just ludicrous. So, therefore, you appealed it to Luba. So, we did. We appealed it to Luba. At the Planning Commission, um, like I said, there was an initial approval that allowed where Commissioner Brozai, a newly appointed commissioner to the Planning Commission, had um, voted in favor of it. And then it was brought to the board's attention that he couldn't vote because he didn't, hadn't reviewed the record and so forth. What I find especially interesting about that, Francis, is that if you go back and you look at the minutes of that planning commission meeting, none of that exchange is relevant or, uh, or not, is, it is absolutely relevant, but none of it is recorded in the minutes. Brozai's vote and then his subsequent withdrawal of his vote and then the fact that it was a tie vote and uh, none of that was recorded. However, if you listen to the audio version of that meeting, it's all right there. So um, if they do decide that they want to change the audio, well, too late. We've got a copy of it, so it's always in evidence. Um, and and that, I say that with with a you know a little bit of a tongue in cheek, but it's pretty apparent to me that Douglas County doesn't have a real high moral compass when it comes to decision making. If they want something to happen, they set the stage, they change the players. Uh, they uh, like Paul Myers uh, told the board of commissioners that a, a, a advertised meeting was ex parte contact. I mean, good God, you know that's just insanity. And yet people just there's nothing they can do except start appealing. So we did that. A group of landowners, myself, um, John Clark, the Brown family, uh, I believe uh, you were maybe France, I think maybe the Women's, Oregon Women's Land Trust was a part of that appeal, took our, our um, decision, uh, the decision by the county to the Land Use Board of Appeals. We lost. Um, and what we were appealing was the major amendment. And that major amendment was approved by Douglas County in 2014. Now remember, the county's law require construction has to begin within two years. So March and April of 2014, two years, by my math, is 2016. In 2016, no extensions were granted, none at all. In 2006, on the major amendment, and in 2016, FERC denied the project. Douglas County decided to extend it. In 2017, God knows how they decided that date even applied to anything, the planning director, Keith Kubik, arbitrarily and randomly decided that because it had been appealed, that time frame allowed the permit to be pushed forward from the standpoint of when development had to begin meaning that because the appeals weren't exhausted in 2015, they had somehow miraculously been given an extra year on their ability to um, begin construction. Now, the law is very clear, both at the state level and the local level. Unless you are granted a stay, the original decision dates are upheld. The original decision date 
was March of 2014. Okay, let's give them the extra month and say it's April of 2014. Neither March or April of 2016 was a request made to extend the major, the, the major amendment. Therefore, it's, it's, it's expired. And so this is what you appealed to LUBA? We've appealed everything to LUBA. We appealed the major amendment, which gave them the right to export, and we said, no, they did that wrong. Now, because they extended it, we've appealed the uh, LUBA. There's some u unique concept in the law that says once a permit is approved, it's no longer a land use matter. It's a paperwork matter, and therefore it can't go to the Land Use Board of Appeals. So it's now been transferred to the Douglas County Circuit Court. So as it stands today, there are three court cases. The first court case is, hey, Douglas County, you can't extend a permit after it's after, with a condition that says it requires federal approval after federal approval has been denied. You did that. That's been appealed. The second appeal was... In 2017, they decided to extend a permit that expired in 2016. That's in circuit court. In December of 2017, because our appeal in 2016 still hadn't been heard by the courts, we've now filed a subsequent suit that says that permit extension is also invalid. So as it is today, there are three cases sitting in, in the circuit court. Now... Um, the really unfortunate thing for us, the landowners, is that it costs us a lot of money all the time to be making these cases and trying to uphold the law and confronting Douglas County's illegal aspects and corrupt practice, practices. The unfortunate thing is that they don't defend themselves. They just sit on the sidelines. And who defends them are the high-priced, high-powered attorneys out of Portland, in this case, the law firm of Perkins Coie. Seth King is the lawyer that represents Pacific Connector. Now, this is a global law firm with a huge oil and gas division that four or five of us are standing up against in the Douglas County Circuit Court. Now, fortunately, there is a, a local attorney in the Ashland area who has stepped up and is assisting us from a pro bono standpoint. So it's, it's all we can do to actually keep up with the costs. And they know this. They know this. And, and that's, that's the whole thing. You know, they buy us off. They try to buy off the landowners. They try to buy off the communities. And then um, in the process of it all, they um, are killing our families. Not just with the threat of an explosion, but with the long-term consequences of the stranglehold the fossil fuel industry has over our our societies and over humanity. When is the court case? What date is it set for? We don't know. We're still waiting for a date. We're still waiting for them. That's their game. Let's push it off. Let's push it off. Let's push it off. And yet, that's one of the biggest accusations that they have for us is to try to create delays. And yet, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. In the meantime, what's happened is the pipeline's been sold. It's been sold by Verison, which did not have the capital in the long run to actually bring these projects to fruition. Pimbana Pipeline has said we're committed to doing that. Pimbana is one of the um, midstream companies out of Canada that is um, trying to find a way to get Canadian gas out of Canada. They can't get their gas out of Canada. They can't get terminals built because of their environmental laws. So they couldn't do it in California. And they couldn't do it in Washington. So where do you think we might find the most vulnerable, at-risk community that could potentially help us become even more um, prosperous than we already are? And they identified Coos Bay, Oregon. And the sad fact is that our communities do not need to settle for death warrants. There is so much more that we can we can have, you know, to say that, I mean, they keep saying unemployment. Douglas County's unemployment rate just went down again today. And with a huge amount of temporary jobs, you do have the problem of human trafficking. That's one of the problems that come along with these. Douglas County Human Trafficking Coalition had a meeting that they held up Jordan Cove as one of the major problems that would cause something like this in Douglas County? It's one of the biggest risk factors, and 
they've actually identified it as a um, uh, having a huge negative impact on our communities across Southern Oregon. You know, uniquely, one of the, the um, supporters of this in Oregon has been the trade labor unions, specifically the um, Oregon Building and Construction Trades Council. Now, we've actually, many of the landowners, it's, you know, what, when you talk about getting to go to hearings over the course of 10 years, a decade, you get to see some of the same faces. We run into each other, we know each other by first on a first-name basis. I come from a union family. I believe in labor. I believe in a fair wage for a fair day's work. I truly do. And, and I can tell you that we are standing on opposite sides of the corners in these hearing rooms. And this is, this is one of my favorite stories. And we had been attending a hearing out at the uh, UCC and giving testimony to FERC. And one of the gentlemen that testified um, got a little aggressive and a little assertive um, outside the, the testimony with me and a couple of other people. And so we had words. We all ended up meeting up at one point um, in the same restaurant right after the hearing. And it's a huge place. He had a lot of places he could sit, but he chose to sit at tables adjacent to where all of those who had testified in opposition were seated. And so I confronted him and said, you know, you have a whole restaurant. Why do you need to be here? And he said, because I was hoping I would get the chance to maybe talk to you. So he invited me to sit down with him. Uh, local pizza place. We're sitting down. And he said, I want to show you something. And he pulled out his phone. And he showed me a picture of one of the most beautiful pieces of property I've ever seen that he owns in Alaska. And he lives in Oregon and works in Oregon. But he has this property that he plans to retire to in Alaska. And... I said, do you mean to tell me that if a pipeline company wanted to put a 36-inch high-pressure gas pipeline through this, you'd be okay with it? And he said, no, that's why I'm here. I'd be doing exactly what you're doing. And I want to tell you that you need to keep it up because these workers aren't coming from the Pacific Northwest. They're not coming from California they're not, it is not our unions that will benefit. It is not the local labor force that will benefit. We are being dictated to by the national trade labor unions to facilitate work for the pipe workers that are going to be losing their jobs in other parts of this country. These are not local jobs that are coming you, your way. The benefits to your economy, by all intents and purposes, will be overshadowed by all of the trouble that will be created by these projects. You want to talk about man camps? If these are local people, why do we have camps, temporary camps, which will be the source of those risks around human trafficking if we're going to be importing these folks? This is specialized construction. It's not something that one of the uh, folks down in Canyonville who works for uh, the laborers' union and the tribe is going to benefit from. It's just not. You know, the Kalamath tribe has come out in opposition to this project because it will be impacting their sacred lands and violating the water sources that they need for their, their people. And we all do. And it's, it's just disturbing to me that we are not getting the kind of support and opposition from our local leadership that ought to know better that ought to know these things. But then again, you know, I'm not running a campaign and don't need that $15,000 contribution. Well, I understand some of our county commissioners have come out opposed to eminent domain, yet it's a pretty weak opposition because they're in favor of the pipeline. If you're in favor of the pipeline opposed to eminent domain, that just doesn't mesh. The pipeline will need to do eminent domain. And we're going to take another quick break. We're talking with Stacy McLaughlin about the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline and the Jordan Cove Project. This is Francis Etherington, your host, Conservation Today, and we'll be right back. We're back talking with Stacy McLaughlin about the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline, which is slated to run a mile through your property and through hundreds of other Oregonians' property. Uh, needing a 100-foot-wide clear-cut through any forest. It's a 36-inch pipeline with high-pressure, unodorized gas buried three feet deep, except if it's in a Class 1 area. Do you know what a Class 1 area is? It's an area defined by the pipeline company 
as less than 10 families living along one mile of the pipeline. And the classes go from class one to class four. Class four is where they have the highest safety precautions, and class one is rural. And so they get to save lots of money by bypassing a lot of the safety precautions and about, I believe, 70% of the pipeline route through southern Douglas County or th through southern Oregon is in a Class 1 area. Yes, and I think that's, that's a lot of our concern is, as I stated earlier, it's not whether a pipeline is going to leak or whether there's going to be an explosion. It's when that will occur. Now, southern Oregon has very high climate issues in the summer as far as heat and forest fire risks, wildland fires. We've seen that over the last several years really devastate many of the communities uh, surrounding us. Douglas County's been lucky in some instances and not so much in others. It will cross over 400 water bodies. Uh, one of the things that is just unbelievable to me is that the South Umpqua River is at the highest level of degradation rating that can be applied by the Department of Environmental Quality, which means anything and everything you do will further damage that South Umpqua River. So it's fragile and it's very vulnerable. That is a water source and a huge part of Southern Douglas County life. My property overlooks the South Umpqua River. The fact that it's going to be further disturbed so that Canadian company corporate shareholders can make a profit is just insanity to me. We are talking about hundreds and hundreds of acres of late successional reserve forests being decimated to accommodate this project. That's about, the pipeline is about 70 miles through Forest Service and BLM lands. And almost 70% of that is to force set aside for uh, endangered species habitat and wildlife and that we enjoy recreating and uh, quite a bit too. So well, that's what you're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. And the other part of this is that, you know, they won't, um, they don't want to tell you where the pipeline route is in certain cases or who's or what, you know, gives you specifics about things. We've for, we have not allowed them access to our property. So they've decided that there are no wetlands on our land because they can't find out. So the thing that's unique about this whole thing and ironic is that the pipeline companies making it up as they go. They want their reports to look thorough and accurate, but they're not. If they haven't been given access to hundreds of properties, how do they know what's actually on those lands? Now, we're a little concerned about that, Francis. When you start talking about endangered species, you start talking about the, the habitat and the ecosystems of properties. Now, I know for a fact that water follows the ridges. They're building this pipeline along the ridges. That scares the living daylights out of us from the standpoint of impacting our water supply. Now, we've owned our property for over 15 years. And in that 15 years, it's only been the last two years, three years, when we've had drought conditions that we have not had our water source in our well last us through the dry times. We've had to have water delivered. We've had to have water deliveries. Water is a huge, huge issue. There are parts of this globe that do not have water for their communities coming up. I mean, we know this. We know that these are a problem. And yet we're not taking that into consideration as these decisions are being explored. When you talk about endangered species, you want to, you, you know, they talk about terrorism and we can't tell you landowners about this because, you know, we might be releasing terrorist information to terror, information to terrorists. And yet, you know, their, their uh, way of checking the safety of this pipeline in the future, if it's constructed, is they're going to do flybys. They're going to fly by on a plane, which means they can follow the route of this pipeline simply by virtue of the easement where they'll be using pesticides and herbicides that you and I don't get to say no to. We don't get to have any say on that part of our property 
once someone else gets an easement and takes it over. And while they may be putting in a 36-inch high-pressure, very thin pipeline because it's in that rural area, as you suggest, you tell me just how deep is three feet when it comes to a root system and fire well, and heavy be, equipment trying to go over that. It can be two feet deep in a class one area of high rock. And so the class one means they get to use thinner pipes, buried higher, less inspections, less wells. They have a whole slew of things that are going to save them tons of money because you're in a rural area. And I assume that means because if it blows, only a few of you will die. Well, and we have this pipeline going within... Uh, you know, less than 50 feet of certain residences where people live. You know, I mean, we want to talk about explosions. Let's look at San Bruno. Let's look at the explosions that have taken place in Colorado. Let's look at the explosions. Let's look at the leak and the explosion that took place along the Columbia up in Oregon on the Washington border. This is not a good decision. There will be blood on somebody's hands as a result of this project. And literally, when a decision of this magnitude boils down to a life or death sentence for my family, I want people to know about that. I want people to know that the system that's approving this is corrupt, that they have county commissioners that are violating their own laws in order to supply this project with permission. I want them to know that when and if there's an explosion and somebody in this county dies, that it was based on a decision that should have never been made. And we're not talking just about Douglas County. This is going clear down to connect with the Ruby Pipeline. It's going into the port of Coos Bay. It's going into the fragile ecosystem that exists there in Haines Inlet. And, and we're not talking about little fishing boats trying to get over that bar. We're talking about huge tankers and the destruction that will be caused to the endangered species that you know way more about than I do in the ocean. Well, um... This project will impact over 30 species protected under the Endangered Species Act, including the pipeline and the terminal. We all know about the spotted owl and the marble merlet, but it will also impact the uh, uh, other lesser-known but very important species to our ecosystem. The, the trips across the ocean alone with these huge tankers, it will increase the tanker traffic across the whale migration routes, by 240 trips a year. And this will impact seven species of whales. And ship strikes is a big issue. It is a big, big problem. And the noise on these marine mammals is another huge problem. Well, you know, the sad fact is that not only am I held hostage as a landowner to this project, but all of us are held hostage to the fossil fuel industry. And it's um, the consumerism that they have uh, brought to us as far as every... I mean, there's, there are a few things that are not a part of this. You know, I mean, when you think about the stranglehold that they have on us, we have to become very intentional. We have to be very intentional. And I'll admit, when I first got involved in this seven, eight years ago, when they rerouted it and it came across my land, it was all about hell no. You are not coming across my property. My husband and I have worked too hard. It is a sanctuary, not just for us, but also for the wildlife that now finds a home there. When I say that, you know, hell no, it's just about my property, that lasted, I'm going to say, maybe a month or two. And I learned, I learned the long-term consequences of what this project and projects just like this will do for the future, for my children you know, and, and the, our grandchildren and the generations that follow us. Well, we, so have, we have responsibility. It's incredible that you've done all that work on your property, and here it is, a foreign corporation can get the permission, could, it hasn't yet, was denied once, could get the permission from our United States government to take your land for a foreign country's profits, purely. has nothing to do with Oregon. We don't get any of the gas. We just get the dangerous infrastructure. You know, and we have I plenty mean, of natural gas. We are not shorted. We don't have any shortage of natural gas. Nope. Besides, this is an export terminal. That export terminal will be built, built right over that subduction zone earthquake fault that we're all preparing for the big one. And this highly explosive terminal with two 
LNG storage tanks, each one is 85 million gallons of stored liquefied natural gas, which requires a lot of electricity to keep it liquefied and compressed. If it ever loses electricity, that gas immediately starts to warm up and expand. The other thing that I think, Francis, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's being built in a tsunami zone. Who does that? Who enhances the danger of something that's already going to devastate this community? If we do have that nine-point anticipated earthquake from the subduction zone, for those people that do survive, is even worse by having that danger there. I think it's also being built right next to an airport. Yes, the airport runway is right across the bay, and it faces those huge LNG tanks. You know... I guess it gets real simple for me when you start talking about the benefits and the um, consequences. And the local leaders in Coos Bay that think this is going to help business, number one, it's going to destroy any kind of view shed or any kind of natural beauty that comes to the area that now is one of their, their prime attractions. And what good is money if you're dead? And it'll eliminate all the recreational boating and all the fishing because none of those boats can be in there when these ships come and go almost uh, daily. Yeah, right. All this for a fossil fuel project that is going to do nothing but add greenhouse gases to the environment. It is not going to replace any coal plants. We know this. It's going to add to the fossil fuels being used. And it's going to detract from other sustainable energy projects because it'll make it cheaper than perhaps putting in solar. And so other sustainable energy projects are going to be degraded because of this. The bottom line is this. If we aren't going to change our ways, then we will become the next great extinction. And the migration has already begun. Governor Brown, I believe, just yesterday signed an order that called for drastic action because of the drought that is going to be affecting Klamath County. Yeah, to add a fossil fuel project that is 86 times more potent than burning coal, and, and to build this infrastructure that's going to stay there for the next 50 years, instead of moving to sustainable, I mean, all the money, the millions and billions of dollars it will take to build this project, think how many solar panels that would build. Well, and, you know, the thing that I find important is that there are the, the wind cycles and the life cycles of wind development, and I'm not talking about onshore, I'm talking about offshore. We have a huge coastline here in Oregon that could be a potential um, economic opportunity for us. We saw a shift with Senator Merkley because Senator Merkley started out against this project, then he got a little wishy-washy about it, then he got, well, you know, 20 by 50, he had all sorts of environmental initiatives of his own that were counterintuitive to the process and to the outcome of Jordan Cove and Pacific Connector, and he's now come out against this project. You know, I think that's leadership. Yes. That's not an easy thing to be able to say. Yes. I think that's what we need is leaders who are willing to take, to take a stand and jump down off of that fence and get on one side or the other. So I'm saying in my mind that if Kate Brown doesn't join him, if Wyden doesn't join him, and by the way, Peter DeFazio's not off the hook here either, if they don't get on the right side of that fence, they are literally supporting the Trump administration around our environment. We have a lot of work to do. And we have to get louder, we have to get more noisy, and we have to do a whole lot more than we're doing in order to stop these projects from infiltrating our communities. And that's what it is. This is an oppressor. They are oppressing us. They are holding us hostage. When I and you and my neighbors as landowners can't do anything with the property that they have because of this threat, that's oppression. That to me is terrorism. You know, when I can't do what I need to do to take care of my family because somebody in Canada wants to make more money at my expense, there's something horribly, horribly wrong with that picture. The, the, the fact remains that this is the taking of American properties for Canadian profits, pure and simple. Now, where is the project at at this point? We know that, uh, that the import project was withdrawn. The first export project was denied. 
in 2016 and 2017, they started the third project. Where are we at with the federal process? Well, at the federal level right now, we are awaiting additional information. They're working on their environmental impact statement. That's not been released, so there's no ability for FERC to make a decision. Uh, you'll certainly let everyone in Douglas County, Stacy, know when they have the opportunity to come to some public meetings and public comments on this in later this summer. At the federal level, um, as you said, they're in the environmental process stage. That's also occurring at the state level. Most and many of the state agencies are looking at some of the requirements. Literally, if you look at the state law, this project can't be built. You can't, it can't be built. And if they, if you if you because look because it degrades waters of the state, they exactly. can't prove that it doesn't degrade waters yes. of the state. Exactly. And I you know I'd rather that our state leadership came out sooner rather than later and said you know what let's just stop the nonsense. This is not good for Oregon. We don't want the project. Please go home. If, you know I don't want to see this project built anywhere. But I can tell you this: that as a landowner, as someone who feels as strongly as I do about this project. There is no question in my mind that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And I don't know how great that sacrifice might be. But I can tell you that it's that big a deal to me. And I know that that's the same with many of my neighbors, that they are willing to do whatever it takes to stop this project. Now, I don't mean that as a threat or as a warning. I mean that as a promise to the trees and to the rivers and to the animals that cross my property. I'm going to do whatever it takes to take care of you and preserve you and protect you. Well, thank you, Stacy. I'm so sorry we're out of time right now. It's been fascinating talking with you. Uh, this is Stacy McLaughlin talking with us about the Jordan Cove project and the Pacific Connector pipeline that will not cross her property in the years to come. This show will be podcast on the KQA radio station website. This is your host, Francis Etherington, and we'll see you next week at the same time for Conservation Today.